Beginning in the late 19th and throughout the 20th century, the organization of labor unions in the United States offers some of the most turbulent stories in national history. A peek into the human face of unions shows accounts of struggle that are often gut-wrenching. But amidst so much pain, there's an indestructible sense of hope, persistence, and even beauty that carries this history forward. Labor activism has touched virtually every industry sector, but the field best known for producing powerful unions is coal mining. All over the world, the conditions of working people have been epitomized in the difficult lives and strategic organizing of those who do one of the most dangerous jobs known to man. Even though I've never worked at a coal mine, let alone joined a coal mining union, this is a story I know well. My great uncle, Joe Tinker, rose from poverty to join the British Parliament in the 1920s. He became known for passing legislation that regulated the working condition of children and teenagers forced to go into the mines every day, just like he did as a child. My mother used to tell me stories that he passed on to her, and they stuck with me. To this day, I remain interested in the living history and present state of all labor activist movements in Great Britain as well as the United States. My story today takes place in the state where I live, work, and study. Today, I'll be talking about coal mining politics in Virginia. Most coal mining in Virginia takes place in the western part of the state, not far from West Virginia, which is squarely in Appalachian territory. The struggles of coal miners in Virginia overlap with Appalachian social justice issues, and the politics of mining here have been compounded by the fact that this area is known for its dire poverty. It's also known for being the punchline of some horribly elitist jokes. For a number of reasons, the treatment of miners in Appalachia exemplifies the divide between business owners and employees that has always been the linchpin of the labor movement. In an essay titled The Memory of Miners and the Conscience of Capital, Appalachian Studies scholar Richard Kudo states that if capital had a conscience, the excesses of the coal industry would trouble it. This becomes clear in the case of Virginian and West Virginian mining unions. But before I go any further, let me back up and reveal a major theme that kept coming up while I was doing my research. As I said, my interest in coal mining unions comes from a long-standing commitment to progressive politics. Indeed, I've always been critical of capitalism, and I see the history of unions as a clear-cut embodiment of a much larger fight against worker exploitation. But the more I learned about what it was really like to be politically engaged in mining politics, the more I realized that in Appalachia, politics as usual often doesn't apply. Seemingly straightforward ideals that those who lean left tend to agree with, like environmentalism, are complicated when they run up against the realities of mining life here. While these incongruities aren't so complicated that outsiders can't understand them, they've generally been painted with a broad brush by the media. This means that the popular versions of this history have often failed to reflect its nuances. As I explore key situations and figures from recent history, I'd like listeners to keep in mind that some viewpoints and actions don't always toe the party lines they might be familiar with. This is in part because those perspectives have changed a lot over the last hundred years, right along with the changing landscape of working life in Appalachian mines. 
Politics is unique here because mining is a vocation with working conditions unlike any other. On that note, let's take a look at what life was like for Appalachian miners in the 20th century. There's no way around the fact that coal mining regions have faced higher levels of poverty on average than other parts of the United States. In 2006, 54 coal mines produced over 4 million tons of coal in 34 counties. The median poverty level for these counties was between 15 and 17 percent higher than the U.S. average at the time, which was around 13 percent. Meanwhile, these counties' median per capita income at the turn of the millennium was around $16,200, which is 25 percent lower than the national average at the time, which is $24,000. Going back a bit further in time, we see that there's been an overall decline in the number of people employed as miners in the United States. In 1900, there were about 448,000 mine workers. Employment peaked in the 20s. In 1920, about 785,000 coal miners produced some 660,000 tons of coal. So while coal employment has dropped, thanks to new methods and mining techniques, production has actually been on their eyes. Some of this can be traced to the controversial issue of strip mining, but we'll get to that a little later on. Life for coal miners in any region during any time period was full of treachery in a way that's difficult for most people to comprehend. The mines of Appalachia were full of serious dangers, many of which were all the more frightening because they were totally invisible. In his book, The Devil is Here in These Hills, Historian James Green quotes a coal worker describing what it was like just to try to breathe in the mines. Smoke from explosions of black powder, the reek of oil lamps, and the pervading coal dust made breathable air something of an obsession with the miner, he said. And pollution isn't the only thing in the air that could kill you in a coal mine. The toxic combination of methane and carbon dioxide that oozes out of coal seams is extremely flammable, and it can easily explode if it comes into contact with the spark. When this happens, fires can hurtle through the mines with the velocity of a hurricane. Airborne toxins are just one of the many occupational perils faced by coal miners. In this business, rates of on-the-job injuries and fatalities have always been dramatically high. In 1923, the year that coal mining hit its highest employment numbers in this country, Roughly one out of every 400 miners would die in a work-related accident. And that statistic doesn't account for the numerous illnesses and injuries sustained that either emerged later and were reported, or, as is thought to be true in most cases, never even disclosed. This includes industrial chronic bronchitis, commonly known as black lung. The data is unclear, but we know that black lung has killed far more Virginian and West Virginian miners than was ever reported. As the 20th century continued, conditions in the mines eventually improved. This is largely due to the political activism of unions, and none of it happened without a fight. And until you organize and express yourself, the politicians will vote for bill in Congress that lengthens the working hour, that puts in a starvation period, 
and abolishes the prevailing wage. That's what the politicians will do unless you make your wants and your rights known. And you can't do it unless you organize. What you're hearing is the voice of John L. Lewis, who is perhaps the single most important figure in United States coal mining activism ever. Between 1920 and 1960, Lewis was the president of the United Mine Workers Association, which was one of the largest workers' unions in world history. He was a fierce champion for workers' rights, and under his leadership in the 1930s, the union grew to nearly 800,000 members. Today, it stands at about 80,000 members. In many important ways, the story of the UMWA's shrinking numbers mirrors the historical arc of all unions in the United States. In this narrative, Lewis emerges as a major figure, although, truth be told, he evoked as much ire as goodwill, and sometimes from the very populations he was trying to serve. Lewis's relationship to the federal government and to other movements was never straightforward, and he earned himself formidable enemies on the left as well as the right. Lewis led the UMWA to make a deal with the Bituminous Coal Operators Association, an industry group that comprised several companies. This was considered a success at the time of its negotiation in 1940. The agreement included clauses for health care, pension benefits, workplace rules, and higher wages. It impacted workers across the United States, although certain smaller issues were left to regional UMWA members to work out with the owners of that area's coal mines. As part of the national deals struck by the union to improve the lives of its workers, Lewis agreed to give up the right to strike without their international union counterparts' explicit agreement. This was a contentious move, and so-called wildcat strikes, which were labor strikes enacted without the official endorsement of the union, became very common. Their frustration reached a boiling point in the late 1970s, and on December 6, 1977, when the UMWA's national contract ran out, members of the union all over America went on strike. This action would last until March of the following year. The strike manifested differently in different parts of the country, but it became, in general, more and more violent over time. Those on strike saw non-unionized coal miners as their political enemies, and in the early weeks, non-union replacements filed thousands of complaints for harassment by the striking workers. One month in, five striking workers were indicted in conspiracy charges for exploding a section of a non-union mining plant near Norfolk, Virginia. In Kentucky, riot police tear-gassed over 400 striking miners. By the beginning of March, the governor of Virginia declared a state of emergency. The strike didn't end until then-President Jimmy Carter intervened, and on March 19th, a compromise was finally reached. What's critical here is that the main issue in this action, which has been retroactively titled the Bituminous Coal Strike of 1977, was the right to strike, in and of itself. The deal that was eventually reached was primarily meant to stymie the number of wildcat strikes that had become so commonplace. But it set a precedent that was picked up on by the federal government. 
Policies from the 1980s quickly weakened the power of unions overall and shifted national attitudes toward labor. The bituminous coal strike was perhaps the most significant coal miners' action of the later 20th century. Because it ultimately led to a compromise that weakened union power, however, it's hard to call it a success. But it did pave the way for a later mining victory in Virginia, although that too was far from a total victory. Between 1989 and 1990, employees of the Virginia-based Pittston Coal Company went on strike to try to convince their firm owners to sign a deal with the UMWA. Although this eventually did happen, many of the initial items proposed by the miners were not included in the final draft. So many of the policies and attitudes around union that became normal during the 1980s may be to blame for the partial win. In the 1980s, during the years of the Reagan administration, many miners in Appalachia lost their jobs. This was largely due to coal importing and competition from the western United States, in particular the state of Wyoming. However, the weakening of the coal mining industry and, relatedly, its unions can be partially attributed to shifting governmental and cultural attitudes toward the plight of miners especially in the wake of all of the destruction from the bituminous coal miners' strike. It was during the 80s that anti-union fervor began to truly grip America. What you're going to hear next is an excerpt from an interview I conducted with Judson Abraham. Judson is a scholar with a focus on populist politics in Appalachia, and he's a colleague of mine here at Virginia Tech. In this clip, He'll talk about the role the Reagan administration played in stoking this anti-union fervor. The Reagan administration had anti-labor policies that were that had a particular impact on the Appalachian coal industry. People talk about Obama's war on coal. During the Obama administration, just over 30,000 coal miners lost their jobs. That's a lot of coal miners and a lot of misery for the areas where they're employed. But during the Reagan administration, it was over 100,000 coal miners lost their job. And that impact was felt most severely in Appalachia. It was Reagan's pro-business policies that really did the Appalachian coal industry in. For example, Reagan deregulated Railroads. This puts the Appalachian coal producers into a lot more intense competition from Western coal producers in places like Wyoming's uh, Powder River Basin. And led to a sharp decline in coal employment. Reagan also gave the green lights to an intense employer offensive against the miners. This was when Massey Energy um, took the opportunity to start buying up unionized coal mines, laying off all the mines workers, and then reopening the mines 
and non-unionized operations. They also started totally ignoring government policies like environmental and safety regulations. Massey did this. And they started opening mines that they really controlled, but calling them independent contractors. This way it was easier for the mines to skirt government regulations and skirt unionization because it was a lot harder to tell which companies owned which mines. And it was easier for employers who maybe controlled certain mines because they were captive suppliers to say that they really didn't have control over what the mine was doing. With this kind of aggressive use of subcontracting, uh, Massey wouldn't have been able to get away with doing that did they not have um, friends in the labor departments who weren't willing to enforce the regulations that were already on the book. What he's talking about here is the Massey Energy Company, which is a coal mining firm that primarily operates in Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky. It was founded in 1920, at the height of the coal boom, and throughout the century underwent a series of business deals, mergers, and strategic acquisitions with other companies, including Pittston, that makes the ownership and governance of specific sites difficult to trace. Recent articles about Massey reveal some unsettling information about their past. On the homepage of their website is a large, glaring condolence notice to those who recently lost loved ones at one of their plants. Pervasive environmental issues seem to have plagued Massey as well. In 2012, they were the defendants in a complicated lawsuit surrounding a plant they operated in southern West Virginia. Over 350 people in Boone County claimed that runoff from the mines was contaminating their drinking water. This is an example of a very fraught issue for miners, environmentalism. Perhaps more than any other subject, environmentalism complicates coal politics. In general, miners are depicted as being tone-deaf to the outcries of environmentalists and liberals who would seem to want to take away their jobs in order to save the natural world. Politics, as usual here, really just doesn't apply. For example, it's been determined that one of the most destructive modern forms of coal extraction, which is loathed by naturalists, that would be strip mining, also offers fewer jobs than more traditional and less invasive mining methods. Let's get back to Judson, who had a few thoughts to share on these complexities. Sometimes the tone when progressive environmentalists talk about um, the Appalachian coal industry assumes that um, it's impossible to reach uh, Appalachian people. Even very thoughtful environmentalists sometimes don't say the most thoughtful things about coal country. And this especially is true when you hear environmentalists insinuate that Appalachian coal miners don't understand the kind of dire straits their industry is in. I'm afraid that sometimes environmentalists are overconfident, for one, that the coal 
whole industry is just going to collapse and there's nothing that can be done about it. But for two, I think that when they point to very real market trends that are certainly causing a lot of damage to the Appalachian coal industry, things like the cheap price of natural gas, for example, things like uh, competition with other countries uh, over coal exports, things like uh, the decline of the steel industry. Um, when environmentalists sort of perpetuate this idea that coal miners think everything will be hunky-dory if we get rid of all of Obama's environmental regulations. They might oversimplify um, the situation. The truth is people in this industry understand this industry very well and they're not just dupes to Trump's rhetoric. As our conversation continued, it became more and more obvious that this issue is as complicated today as it's ever been. Judson spoke movingly about bills that had recently been introduced in Congress to make life easier for minors. This proposed legislation hasn't made much headway, despite promises from the Trump campaign. What stuck out the most to me, though, was Judson's optimism. After years of researching mining unions, he very much believes that there's hope for them. We spoke a bit about the perception that young people in Appalachia today, including those who work in mines, don't support left-leaning causes. He agrees with this observation, but he also sees other trends that offer real cause for hope. The Republican Party has a lot more support among young West Virginians, and I think that this is kind of in the reverse of how it is for the rest of the country. The energy uh, behind progressive politics in West Virginia being really sapped up with a lot of the transitions I, and historical changes I appealed to earlier. This is one dynamic of mainstream perceptions that I've certainly noticed. This does not mean, however, that organized labor is done and spent on young people in Appalachia. I see a lot of hope in the Fight for 15, which has a lot of support in metro action areas like uh, Knoxville, like uh, Roanoke and Richmond. Um, and I think that this could be crucial in an economic transition. You know, a $15 minimum wage is not going to make the difference for somebody who's used to making 60000 a year as a coal miner. But in areas that are undergoing this kind of tra- uh, transition, a $15 minimum wage will bestow some dignity to service sector jobs mm-hmm. and stability to them that will show that they are real work and that it's respectable. 
The Fight for 15, which is a movement to raise the minimum wage to $15, is another outgrowth of the same struggle from which mining unions were born. The presence of the Fight for 15 is very evident in large urban areas, but it spread to rural areas and it gained in popularity during the Bernie Sanders campaign. To be honest, the future of these organizations and movements is unclear. But if anything's been proven true, is that the persistence of working people to improve their lives is something that business owners can't touch. In short, the story is still unfolding. Hot on the heels of a new administration, and with left populist sympathies provoked by Sanders still very strong, it will be interesting to see what happens to labor over the next few years. There are still many stories to be told from the recent past that can help us shape our future. Before I sign off, I want to tell you about this wonderful music we've been hearing. This is actually from a bluegrass group that's local to Blacksburg. They're called the Black Twig Pickers. I'd also like to offer my gratitude to Judson Abraham for letting me interview him and to say hi to my colleagues in Digital History Methods who helped me out a lot on this podcast. Thank you to everybody.